Good morning, friends. Welcome. Mogfarts episode four. It is exactly 6.38 a.m. on Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. The truckers in Canada are holding strong. The Freedom Convoy, it's spreading around the world. Very good news. And it harkens me back to 10 years ago when the Occupy movement was going down. Similar situation, siege, protest campaigns against corrupt government, techno-fascist, bioterrorist, legitimate fascism, the merger of state and corporate power, right? Government saying, oh, you got to get your, get your citizens all jabbed up. Insurance companies say, oh, we're not going to insure your company unless you get your, get your employees jabbed up. And the truckers saying, fuck that noise. Just like so many people said the same thing back in 2011 when the Occupy movement got going. Anybody watching can see this picture here. That's my 10-year my challenge. That's what I looked like 10 years ago when I was real clean cut, working as assistant to Michael C. Ruber. Believe it or not, I'm wearing a Gucci, a Gucci suit in that picture. Uh that my buddy Wes gave me. Thank you. Thank you for the suit, Wes. I gave it back to him eventually. People lately have been telling me, you got to clean up your act. You got to trim your hair. Get that mustache off your lip. But no, not doing that. I like, uh, I like looking a little rugged. And it separates people that are all trapped in the image from the people who are actually interested in the message. Some quick news this morning. Sadly... You know, so many businesses, so many small businesses have suffered over the last two years due to the governments and the big financial interests and the non-governmental organizations. Response to the COVID pandemic that was put together by folks like Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, Michael Bloomberg, and so forth. <clears throat> Sadly, English, England's oldest pub possibly 1,229 years old, shuts its doors due to coronavirus hardships. This is coming at us from the Washington Post. And uh, one thing I like about this article, you know, I don't really get down with the Washington Post, but in paragraph three, they openly admit that the government's public health restrictions are what squeezed the business until, until he couldn't meet its financial obligations, talking about the owner of the pub. Remember the early days of the pandemic when they would just blame everything on coronavirus, just like they blame everything on climate change, just like they blame everything on domestic extremists or racist white supremacists or whatever. They love to, they love to find something and blame it. And... Now the corporate media is actually, you know, acknowledging that the government did all that. Big interest did all that. The Great Reset Agenda did all that. Fortunately, our friends up in Canada, the truckers, are fighting back. February 6th, Business Insider tells us Ottawa declares state of emergency over the trucker protests that have blockaded the city for 10 days. Have you seen... You know, the, the contrast between the corporate media coverage 
and the NPR coverage, Nazi propaganda radio, NPR, Nazi propaganda radio, is what it has devolved into. You see the stark contrast between what you see in actual live streams, actual people at the event, on the ground, dance parties, people cooking food for one another in the street, people of all colors and creeds coming together for freedom, which is why the title of this podcast today, Freedom from Fear. All these people coming together, yet the corporate media, they downplay it. They they downplay the numbers. They say that it's a bunch of white supremacists. Just, you know, I'm pretty sure this has nothing to do with race whatsoever, this protest. And uh, they go out of their way to do everything they can to diminish it, to demonize it. Ironically, of course, at the same time, we've got this, well, we've been dealing with this supply chain issue, shortages at stores. And I'm sure even though they, you know, they downplay, they say, oh, there's a, there's a couple hundred people there, a few dozen trucks, even though it's spreading all over the world, probably hundreds of thousands of people all over the world and uh, tens of thousands of vehicles, well, tens of thousands of vehicles in Canada alone. It's hard to get the exact numbers, but I've seen people I trust saying 50,000 trucks taking part in protests up in Canada. Um, but the point is they try to minimize the positive, you know, they try to minimize the numbers, demonize the protest. And when these supply chain shortages get worse, which they're going to do, because these have been in the, in the works for a long time. They're going to try to blame the truckers. Even though corporate media says there's just, oh, there's just, a, you know, not that many people taking part in that. Stand strong, Canada. Thank you for what you're doing. Everybody else out there, keep it up. Keep speaking up. You know, you don't have to go to a protest to make your voice heard. Maybe that's not for everybody. There's plenty of ways you can do it all day, every day. Do the opposite of what they say. We have the power. We have the power to make every single moment of our lives an act of freedom and resistance to tyranny. So let's do that. Let's do that. One way we can exercise our freedom is by voting with our dollars. One company you definitely shouldn't support GoFundMe. I'm sure everybody has seen this by now, but it's worth extrapolating on, you know, freight waves. This is coming from freight waves, the nerve center of the global supply chain. GoFundMe suspends Freedom Convoy fundraiser. Donations for trucker anti-vaccine mandate protest in Canada paused to ensure the funds are going to the intended recipients. Well, we know now that uh, those funds have been returned to the people who donated Initially, GoFundMe was sitting on, I think, eight or nine million dollars that was donated, and they were going to hold on to it. You could write them and request your money back. But there was enough of an uproar that everybody demanded their money back and got it to the truckers. In other ways, here you see a nice little image of one of the Freedom Convoy events, which are 
blossoming and spreading all over the world right now. It's important to note as this as this uh, protest grows, as this movement builds, we are going to see backlash. We're going to see dirty, underhanded tactics, agent provocateurs, false flag events, and stuff like that as the government attempts to demonize and shut down these protests. We all remember the Occupy movement and the Standing Rock protests. Well, that was a, actually, protest is the wrong word. Peaceful prayer encampment. And this whole Freedom Convoy thing reminds me of a time when the government blockaded a road. When the government blockaded a road. See if I can find a picture of this. Here we go. That's it there. <clears throat> With trucks. And if you're watching the broadcast instead of listening to it, you can see these two old military trucks parked in the middle of the highway. Uh, the Standing Rock Reservation is located south of Bismarck, about a 40-minute, 50-minute drive south of Bismarck, North Dakota, I believe. I could be wrong about the city name. But long story short, there's a big city, one of the biggest cities in North Dakota, about an hour up the road north, maybe a little less. And there's a bridge just, just north of the reservation, the Cannonball River. There's a bridge. The protest was right there on some... Army Corps of Engineers land. Then there's another bridge. And then the highway continues up to the big city. Well, long story short, the government took back, there was like an advance camp that, the, uh, that was actually on the pathway of the proposed oil pipeline that the natives were protesting against. And the government basically raided that camp, pushed everybody back, arrested a bunch of people, cracked a bunch of heads, used overt violence to evict these people from their protest encampment, beat everybody back, pushed them back eh, several hundred yards down the hill, down past this bridge. And then they took these two old military trucks. You know, they look like Vietnam War era surplus. And they parked them like that, blocking the road, supposedly to, uh, you know, temporarily assure that nobody came through, right? And then that night, my buddy Derek Bros, Derek Bros, thanks for everything you do. He was at, he was out there at the time. I hadn't been out to Standing Rock yet. This took place in maybe September, or October of the first first year of the protest. I'm going to see if I can find another image for you. And uh, they parked these trucks down there. And then that night, interestingly, here we go. Boom. That night, the trucks were burned. And Derek was down there by the bridge when these guys showed up in this pickup truck guys who hadn't been at the protest before they showed up 
got really aggressive with everybody. They were all dressed similarly. They got really aggressive with everybody. And they torched these trucks. And then the government used that as an excuse to erect a giant blockade on the road, saying that, well, because these trucks burned on the bridge, the bridge was no longer safe, so they had to shut it down, effectively cutting the Standing Rock protest off from the big city to the north. So instead of taking, you know, I don't think it was an hour drive, probably closer to 40 minutes. But then you had to drive around this back road in the wintertime. And it took you, I think, probably an hour and a half, two hours to get to the big city going on the back road. Because these agent provocateurs torched these trucks on the road. And then the government used the bogus reason to erect a giant blockade on the bridge and shut down the road. That's the sort of tactics the government will resort to to starve an occupation, to starve an encampment. Of course, 10 years ago with Occupy, we saw a coordinated federal crackdown where they were busting skulls, throwing people's stuff in the trash, uh, encouraging homeless people, drug addicts to go hang out at the protest to try to you know, demonize it, take steam away from the engine of resistance, make it look bad. Maybe I should clean up my image a little bit. I don't know. But the point is, got to be ready for just about anything. Especially when we're really and truly, those of us that are really and truly aware of what we're up against, we know these people will stop at nothing to get what they want. They'll wage wars. They will pass bogus laws. They will print up trillions of dollars and gift it to anybody who uh, supports their mission. This one's interesting news. Uh, I'm sure y'all saw this. The Biden administration free crack pipes. GOP outraged at the $30 million Biden plan to fund crack pipe distribution. It's a clown world. My old boss, Michael C. Rupert, rest in peace, Mike. Former LAPD narcotics detective who blew the whistle on the CIA smuggling cocaine into the country, fueling the crack cocaine epidemic that swept through inner cities back in the day. Still affecting inner cities, well, people all over, you know, thinking about drugs, man. Obviously, stuff like nicotine, alcohol, that are legal, that derail so many people's lives. And you got all the pharmaceutical drugs that are perfectly legal, that fuck people up. And you got the hard street drugs like heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, all the party drugs, all the illegal drugs. You know, despite the 40-year war on drugs, they still seem to find their way into the country somehow. And now we got the President of the United States handing out crack pipes. These are the sort of tactics 
Another tactic they use, they jack up the price of everything, right? Inflation. We're told, oh, it's a sign of progress. If you're, if the value of housing goes up, that's good for the economy, right? But in reality, a truly successful civilization, the cost of everyday goods and services, the basic fundamentals you need to survive, food, water, shelter, would go down, right? <laughs> they want us to be afraid of deflation, like, oh, heaven forbid things get cheaper. And here we see, coming from agriculture.com, the cattle price explosion is now, published a couple days ago. Last summer at the 2021 Cattle Industry Convention, market experts from CattleFax told beef producers they could anticipate an explosion in cattle prices within months. Boy, were they right. The surging market for all classes of cattle explains the smiles on producers' faces at the 2022 Cattle Industry Convention taking place this week in Houston. Fed cattle prices now near $140 per CWT are up $25 from last year. Feeder calves are now over $2 a pound at many auction markets from $1.60 last year. So that's huge inflation, huge inflation. Well, we got that, that going on, you know, cost of food, cost of fuel, cost of housing, cost of living going up. An artist recently placed a cube made of $11.7 million worth of gold in Central Park. Wow. You made a cube out of gold. $11.7 million worth. Put it in a park just to, I don't know what. Crazy clown world we live in. Luckily, locally here, we can escape off into the mountains to get away from the madness. I've been doing a lot of skiing, still finding plenty of good snow out there, even though it hasn't, we haven't had a real good snowstorm in a month. Local Abbey forecast, low at all elevations, all locations. Anybody listening to this, it's still good. It's still good on a lot of aspects. A little bit of north, just a little bit of north on west and east aspects shaded protected locations especially between you know about seven thousand and nine thousand feet it's still skiing phenomenally well so get you some take advantage of this opportunity to go explore a place you've never been before even if you don't find good snow you will have a great opportunity to reflect on life in a real sense of adventure as you go out and explore this winter has been all about exploration for me, and I've been loving it. Looking at the forecast, spot weather forecast locally for here in Alpine. This is the forecast at 7,000 feet. Supposed to stay pretty cool. A couple days above freezing over the weekend, which might uh, impact the snowpack a bit. But luckily, it's supposed to start snowing again, so they say, on Tuesday. And snow throughout the rest of the week. So, fingers crossed. Although, they like to do that. The forecast loves to predict snow towards the end of a 10-day forecast. And then as you get closer and closer, that chance of snow evaporates. It's funny how that works out. I'm supposed to head down to Deer Valley today to see some buddies from high school. 
all my high school buddies from Winona, Minnesota. Well, not all of them, but maybe 10 or 12 or 15 of them are getting together. You know, they're all doing pretty well for themselves, and that's great. It makes me happy to see my buddies living uh, successful lives, beautiful families, successful businesses, money in the bank. I'm supposed to head down there and visit them, but I got a rule. You don't leave good snow to go skiing. And it looks like the snow down in Park City. It looks like they've had a harder go than we've had here. Uh, no snow in the forecast down there either. I'm not really a big fan of ultra-exclusive ski resorts either. Although it is fun when you go there and you get a bunch of stuff for free. And the local, the local ski bums just seem to know that you're a kindred spirit. And they hook you up with free shit. Gotta love it. Somehow, you can just roll up, get on a lift. No ticket. Go into a bar, get a free drink, free something to eat. Sometimes it just works out that way. I don't know. They just know. Which is why I'm always trying to hook people up, too. One group that's not trying to hook us up is the people that control the weather. Well, they don't control it, but they're always manipulating it. Kind of a bummer. Weather modification history, they recently updated it. And it's uh, not as slick and smooth as it used to be. But anybody interested in the weather manipulation agenda? that ties closely into the climate change agenda. There, it's loading up. It's just slow. Used to used to load up a lot faster. Um, head on over to weathermodificationhistory.com. Do a little reading. It's so fascinating. Like here, here's an article from the Daily Herald in Adelaide, Australia, from 1914. About weather made to order electrical control. I'll read you a little excerpt from this. This is over 100 years old. It's 107, 108 years old. The weather of the United Kingdom is from a newspaper. The weather of the United Kingdom could be controlled by a switchboard. That is, if Sir Oliver Lodge has his way. Sir Oliver Lodge devoted the greater part of the Kelvin Lecture at the Institute of Electrical Engineers recently to the framing of a program by means of which electricians may tame the storm cloud and provide a deputy for sunlight when mists hang over the land. Goes on and on. Using electricity to manipulate the weather 108 years ago. Fascinating stuff. You go through here, see, you know, weather used as a weapon. Of course, uh, recently... Well, a while ago now, there was a the big hoopla about China and the Olympics, the previous Olympics. Oh, yeah, the Olympics are going on. That's big news, right? Big news. Um, China using weather modification to improve, you know, quote, unquote, improve the weather over the Olympics. Here we go. Microsoft Network. China successfully modified the weather to create clear skies. That's a new one. 
And then the, here's a big one. It's even CNN reports on this occasionally in 2020. China to expand weather modification program to cover area larger than India. Okay. People have been playing God with the weather all over this world for over a century. Just like they play God with the food supply, with artificial pesticides, genetically modified foods. Just like they play God with human lives, with these new mRNA experimental injections. Just like they play God with the money supply, creating something out of nothing. With these centrally controlled conspiracy fiat currencies that they conjure up with the click of a keyboard, devaluing your dollar while gifting new money to their old money buddies. So, yeah, it's a multi-pronged assault on humanity, on freedom. I've been speaking up on the geoengineering thing, the chemtrails thing for a long time. Here you can see pictures of uh, the global march against chemtrails and geoengineering from 2014. That's my truck. Parked at the top of Teton Pass, raising awareness, still raising awareness. There's no snow. Well, chemtrails, aka geoengineering, weather modification, even, you know, stuff like harp electrical manipulation of the, of the uh, atmosphere. But I choose to use the term. Back then I was using the term chemtrails, and I still do to a large extent. Because the geoengineering term is loaded with the notion, you know, that's how they report on weather modification in the mainstream. They say, oh, we might one day have to resort to geoengineering to save the planet from climate change. Never mind the fact that humans have been intentionally changing the weather and thus the climate. Because climate is merely weather averages over time. Humans have been intentionally changing the weather for over 100 years with no oversight, no transparency, no honesty from the corporate media about it. And you wonder why, you know, why is it warm? Why is there, you know, why isn't there as much snow, as much precipitation of all sorts as, as we would like, especially as skiers? We got to put yourself in the perspective, put yourself in the shoes of the people that run this civilization. Think about uh, how difficult it can be, you know, big snowstorm, how difficult it can be to clear your sidewalk, your walkway, your driveway around your buildings. And then imagine that you control the funds used to clear the interstate highway system, airports, military bases, factories, huge cities, all the streets and alleyways in huge cities. And you can see that snow costs the ruling class, the elites. Cold weather, snowy weather costs them a lot of money. They have to pay it out to plow drivers. Stuff like that. They save a lot of money. They can squirrel away a lot more money by keeping it warmer, making it not snow. One of many reasons people manipulate the weather. Of course, you can use the weather as a weapon. 
course, uh, you can use the weather to uh, augment snowpack, augment pre precipitation. Right? You can get more rain where you want it. You can have less rain where you don't want it. And that's what they do. They play God with the weather. Just like they play God with the food supply. The money supply. Human genetics. And so much more. We're told we got to trust these good drug companies. Oh, you got to, you know, they say, oh, you got to get your experimental jabs. <laughs> Utterly insane. Meanwhile, Johnson & Johnson, one of the purveyors of those pokey pokes, Recently, eight days ago, they settled with the U.S. tribes. They're paying $590 million to settle for their opioid epidemic abuses, pushing opioid painkillers on the population, just like they're pushing these experimental injections now. Boycott Teton Media Works. You know, they say think globally, act locally. I've been leading, spearheading a young boycott movement against the local propaganda rag, the pseudoscientific, paper-wasting, profit-driven, power-hungry propagandists at Teton Media Works and their local Jackson Hole Daily, Jackson Hole News and Guide propaganda rags. Put together a long article on that one. I read it in the last episode. It's still going on. It's still building steam. It doesn't cost me anything to call for a boycott. So I'm going to keep doing that. I encourage you all to read this. If you're watching this, read that. And uh, let's go. Let's go. Um, I'm going to share a book with you all today. This is the real meat of the podcast we're getting into now. Going to Amazon. Don't look at my purchases. I'm not actually buying dog sweaters. But I have been buying a lot of books. And one book that I'm currently reading, I'm 430 pages into it. COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey by Peter Roger Bregan, MD, and his wife, Ginger Ross Bregan. The Bregans have written a lot of books. I can't believe I didn't know anything about the Bregans until recently when this book was recommended to me by one of the few people that comments on my YouTube videos. Thank you, Dashbots. My YouTube channel heavily censored, heavily shadow banned. And I used to be able to uh, get a good audience on YouTube. My most viral video there. I wonder when it was. See if it pops up here. Oh, yeah. 240,000 views on there. Whoa, that's right. I talked. I had to talk with Bear Brown. Um, yeah, talk with Bear Brown. 782 views um, eight years ago 240,000 views I was able to get 240,000 views on my YouTube channel talking about how to survive depopulation I encourage you all to check that one out I don't know why YouTube's having such a hard time loading that video but that one rings true today 
We've been ringing the alarm for a long time, a lot of us. Not to toot my own horn, but the point is, censorship's real. Peter Roger Bregan had a uh, YouTube channel that was taken down. The guy's 84 years old. He's an MD. He's been fighting, you know, it's crazy everything this guy has done. He has, this guy has changed the world by using his clout and his voice for good. Peter Bregan, back in the 70s, fighting against lobotomy, the procedure where they would scramble people's brains surgically. Peter Bregan, MD, fought against... Uh, electroshock therapy you know zapping people with electricity to supposedly fix their brains and he has fought against all sorts of toxic medications in the realm of psychiatry this guy's been at it for 50 years 50 years fighting the good fight fighting for humanity check that one out if you would be so inclined, this video, How to Survive Depopulation. It's over there on YouTube, my most my most viral one. Seeing guys like Peter Bragan gives me hope, right? Gives me the resolve to keep speaking up, keep trying to wake people up. And I encourage you to read his latest book. He's uh he's a bit more of a Trump supporter than I am, to say the least. But he is, it's obvious this guy is legit and sincere. And he, he approaches the COVID situation from a uh, global perspective, looking at how the globalist, well, he calls them the global predators. I would call them the techno fascist, bio terrorist, global elites, in partnership with uh, corrupt forces within our own government. And uh, the Chinese Communist Party, he really stresses this connection to the Chinese. Um, it's a good read. And uh, Mr. Bragan has written books on a number of topics. And one topic that he has written on is, uh, well, what's the book called? Hold on one second, because I'm going to tie this all together here real quick. Thank you for your patience. I hope you're out for a walk or something. Well, we'll get to it in here. He wrote a book on this topic years ago. I'm going to read you guys chapter 32 from Peter and Ginger Bregan's excellent new book. September came out September 30th, 2021. Chapter 32, Suffering and Recovering from Loss of Freedom. Freedom from Fear, that's the title of our podcast today. Let me get this mic. Sorry, I'm going to make a little noise here. I want to get the mic just right so I can actually read this book on camera without pumping the mic. Suffering and Recovering from Loss of Freedom. Powerful words from Peter and Ginger Bregan. All creatures seem to hunger for freedom. From moles tunneling underground to human beings learning how to fly, creatures thrive on expressing their nature as fully as possible. When thwarted or blocked in their purposes, they try to find a way around it. 
in human beings, this desire for freedom is expressed every day by millions of children who at an early age learn to say no in the face of negative consequences. Historically, this motivation to overcome blocks to their liberty was demonstrated by our nation's founders when, when, when signing the Declaration of Independence that simultaneously became their death warrants in the eyes of King George, if he could have caught them. Animals love their freedom and suffer without it. The mechanistic psychologist Ivan Pavlov, right? We all know Pavlov's dog. Ivan Pavlov postulated a freedom reflex in animals to describe their distress upon being confined or restrained. This is a quote from Ivan Pavlov. We tried out experimentally numerous possible interpretations, but though we had had long experience with a great number of dogs in our laboratories, we could not work out a satisfactory solution of this strange behavior until it occurred to us at last that it might be the expression of a special freedom reflex and that the dog simply could not remain quiet when it was constrained in the stand. Okay, they had some sort of stand they were making the dog occupy. This reflex was overcome by setting off another against it, the reflex for food. We began to give the dog the whole of its food in the stand. At first, the animal ate but little and lost considerably in weight, but gradually it got to eat more until at last the whole ration was consumed. At the same time, the animal grew quieter during the course of the experiments. The freedom reflex was being inhibited. It is clear that the freedom reflex is one of the most important reflexes or if we use a more general term, reactions of living beings. This reflex has even yet to find its final recognition. In James's writings, it is not even enumerated among the special human instincts, but it is clear that if the animal were not provided with a reflex of protest against boundaries set to its freedom, the smallest obstacle in its path would interfere with the proper fulfillment of its natural functions. Some animals we all know have this freedom reflex to such a degree that when placed in captivity, they refuse all food, sicken, and die. End quote from Ivan Pavlov. Because modern psychology, hold on, hold on. just trying to get this book up here. There we go. What? Ah, well, you get the idea. There. Excuse me. Technical difficulties. I guess that's why Joe Rogan has got young Jamie working the computer for him. Because modern psychology largely ignores or rejects freedom in humans, let alone in animals, Pavlov's concept of the freedom reflex or reaction is as fresh and startling in some ways as it was when he discovered or described it. In the above quote, he calls it one of the most important reflexes of living beings. He describes the necessity of having this reaction. Otherwise, the smallest obstacle in its path would interfere with the proper fulfillment of its natural functions. He directly relates the loss of freedom to extreme suffering, even in animals who, 
when placed in captivity, they refuse all food, sicken, and die. Helplessness in the face of losing freedom. When Pavlov describes the captive animal's refusal to eat, allowing itself to die, he is seeing the animal enacting the feeling of helplessness that overcomes animals and humans when they lose their freedom. Anyone who has spent time with toddlers has seen that freedom reflex expressing itself and probably has experienced the youngster's negative reactions to being confined or restrained. Eventually, animals and humans tend to adapt to the suffering caused by the loss of freedom and may stop attempting to fight back or to escape. They often become docile and obedient. They may end up identifying with the oppressor with the oppressor, as in the classic Stockholm Syndrome. It is the threat facing us all at this moment, the threat that we will be overcome by helplessness in the form of docility and obedience and eventually identify with and support our oppressors. Jeffrey Masson on Animal Freedom. I asked the one person in the world whose books have most encouraged my feelings of empathy for animals if he would comment on animals and their need for freedom for my legal report in the Ohio case and then for inclusion in this book. He is Jeffrey Masson, the author of When Elephants Weep and Dogs Never Lie About Love. And here is what he wrote. In a new book, Mama's Last Hug, Franz DeWall, director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center, tells the story of Mama, a chimpanzee who was 59, the great matriarch of the colony at Berger's Zoo at Arnhem in the Netherlands. She was curled up in the fetal position in her straw nest, clearly in her last days. Nobody in their right mind would enter the cage of such an animal, but a biology professor, Jean van Hoof, had known Mama many years before, and the two had become close. As soon as she saw the old professor, himself approaching 80, enter the cage, a first anywhere, barely able to move, she managed to get up from her nest, and one of the staff took a video of what happened next. She came very close and when she recognized him and began making sounds of joy that chimpanzees make at reunions, threw her arms open and embraced him as he cried in joy. It's a lovely story, no doubt, but what made me sad was not that Mama was saying goodbye to her human friend, but that she had spent more than 50 years in captivity. Chimpanzees do not belong in a cage anywhere for any reason, period. It is a crime against nature. But then, is, not, is that not true of all zoos? I would have to say yes. No wild animal should ever live in a cage or be fenced in or on an island surrounded by a moat. It is not natural, that is, it goes contrary to its nature. It has taken some time for humans to recognize the depth of suffering that animals show when they are confined in a cage or even in a corral. Remember, this is not something they ever experience in the wild. Yes, a prey animal is killed, but swiftly. 
No other animal other than man puts a member of a different species into a cage or confinement for life. The, the depression that overcomes every single confined animal is well known now to animal scientists. The animals become listless. They lose their appetite. Some will even starve themselves to death. They lose their interest in other animals, even their own partners. In short, they give up on life. Some will eventually recover, but their lives have been marked forever and not for the better. Well, you might well ask, is, it not, is that not true of horses then? After all, you cannot allow a horse to simply wander. No, you cannot. And that, to me, is a weighty argument against the domestication of horses. How about parrots then? Absolutely not. Parrots are not even domesticated. They are not meant to live in cages. Orcas and dolphins perish the thought. But then what about cats and dogs? Ah, that is a difficult topic. You cannot simply leave a dog to go in and out of the house, but the difference is that the dog wants to be there. The dog chooses to live with you. As does a cat, possibly the only animal we can allow its freedom. Cats come and go as they pre please, and that is how it should be. Freedom is essential to all animals. They all need it. They all want it every bit as much as we do. What is the worst thing that can happen to a human? To be locked in prison or a psychiatric ward, or even to be forbidden to leave a country. Think of North Korea. To be trapped is to be de deprived of perhaps our single most cherished possession, freedom. We are animals after all, and just like all other animals, we want to live free. Humans love freedom, too. That's the end of the quote. Humans love freedom, too. Much like animals, humans can become dismal and despairing when faced with their loss of freedom. Unless their spirit has been crushed, humans want nothing more than to escape even the most accommodating prison or their involuntary confinement at home. In humans, like many animals, loss of freedom can lead to overwhelming feelings of helplessness and, as I describe in my book, guilt, shame, and anxiety. It can result in every expression of our basic negative emotional reactions, including anger, emotional numbness, guilt, shame, and anxiety. As an aside, that's the book I was looking for, Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety. I'm going to get that one next and read it, because I think these things affect a lot of us in ways that we subconsciously can't fully comprehend. An entire nation is being deprived of its pride and dignity without the perpetrator seeming to give it a second thought. We are criticized or even censored if we express outrage over the suffering the lockdowns are causing so many of us. This is a large part of the dehumanization process, robbing people of their freedom and then refusing to recognize that loss of freedom is itself a demeaning process and experience in addition to its more obviously destructive aspects. The aim of coercion is to gain power over another, to put one's own will in place of another's. In short, coercion is used to make people do what they do not wish or choose to do. To refrain from coercing others and to resist being victimized, it, we must be able to identify coercion and find better alternatives. This is true in both our personal and our political lives. 
the founders of this nation, including those who conceived of it and fought for it, often saw themselves as expressing and defending their desire for liberty and their earnest goal to see freedom spread throughout the world. Suppression of choice making and freedom. The suppression of our freedom can lead to the self-imposed suppression of our desire and capacity for making choices. We become seemingly unable to make decisions and take actions on our own. When freedom seems utterly lost, it can become too painful and perhaps unimaginable to make choices. The fear of punishment for seeking freedom can also make us suppress our wishes in order to stay out of trouble. The profound resentment we feel can confuse and disable us. Children, for example, often stop wishing for things they believe they cannot have or that will lead to punishment, including more freedom. The self-suppression of our need and desire for freedom leads to apathy, indifference, and docility. That is the result of our giving up making choices on our own behalf. As a part of this collapse into helplessness, we stop blaming others and instead blame ourselves in self-punitive, demoralizing ways. All oppressive situations from domestic violence and cult experiences to brainwashing and political oppression, such as the world is undergoing during COVID-19, can result in this outcome as the person being controlled gives up trying and becomes helpless and unable to make choices. Guilt shame, and anxiety are emotions which, when stirred up in the extreme, can cause people to withdraw and to experience themselves as having no free will or self-determination. It is often expressed as apathy and indifference. This is closely related to the emotional blunting I describe as one of the negative legacy emotions in my book, Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Your Negative emotions as an aside i gotta read that book i gotta read that book studies on an individual and political level show totalitarian environments create abolition apathy and indifference after the fall of the berlin wall older people from behind the iron curtain were so indoctrinated into dependence and helplessness they could not rejoice in the changes which was left more often to youth Individuals lacking in volition are ideal citizens for a totalitarian political system, but they vastly impair the functioning of a democratic republic. Eventually, their inability to contribute to society also impairs totalitarian societies and leads to their demise. The cost of coercion, the impact on the victim. One might wish that abusing people would cause the perpetrator to feel guilt, shame, and anxiety, but in reality, they often feel empowered, much as we see with the global predators. Power can be exhilarating, and the more they get, the more they want. Especially in childhood, but also in adulthood, the victims are the ones who feel badly and self-blaming towards themselves. While it seems easily understandable that victims might experience anxiety and perhaps shame, it seems at first glance more puzzling that they also experience guilt. The key, I believe, is the psychological helplessness engendered in victims, which makes them vulnerable to guilt, shame, or anxiety. 
Overall, coercion always has a cost for the victim. Most obviously, it creates psychological helplessness, including guilt, shame, and anxiety in the victim. It encourages victims to lie and to dissemble. While perpetrators lie to others and sometimes to themselves to cover up their abuses, victims learn to lie and dissemble to avoid or minimize further oppression. Eventually, they lie to themselves about their real feelings about being suppressed or abused, a process that is sometimes called denial. During COVID-19, both individuals and societies are going through this emotional turmoil with increasing oppression, energizing the perpetrators, and grinding down the victims. Under these circumstances, the victims must reject their helplessness and fight back as effectively and ethically as possible. Short aside, that's what we're seeing right now with the Freedom Convoy movement. Thank you to everybody taking part in that. Understanding psychological helplessness. In my book, Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety and Scientific Articles, I have described how oppressed individuals end up shutting down their own vitality. They become overwhelmed with helplessness, and the feeling often leads to what I call the negative legacy emotions of emotional numbing or apathy and anger, beneath which are deeper negative feelings of guilt, shame and anxiety. My recent publication, co-authored with J.N. Stoltzer, PhD, a professor of childhood and family life, describes effect of psychological helplessness, including how it is reinforced by oppression. Here's a quote from the recent publication. Physical or objective helplessness can be distinguished from psychological helplessness, which is subjective and emotional in origin. Physical helplessness is exemplified by being incarcerated behind bars or afflicted with a neurological paralysis. Psychological helplessness involves feeling, believing, or acting as if one were emotionally imprisoned and paralyzed and unable to take effective or meaningful changes in one's attitudes or behaviors. Prisoners are physically paralyzed individuals. Prisoners or physically paralyzed individuals may be largely unable to improve their physical status, but they do not have to become psychologically helpless. That is, they do not have to give up looking for opportunities to improve their emotional, psychological, and physical responses. In the publication, I briefly described disabling effects of extreme abuse upon adults. My observations apply directly and without modification to the, to the effects of increasing degrees of totalitarian control in COVID-19. The effects of abuse in adulthood. When adults are exposed to extreme abuse, their sense of personal value and worthiness of love can be crushed. This occurs when disabled elderly and other vulnerable persons are abused within their own families. It occurs when people are abducted and held in captivity, or when they are incarcerated in total institutions, such as extermination camps, prisoner of war camps, mental hospitals, or prisons. In all these situations, the perpetrators, such as hardened staff, such as hardened staff, often systematically attempt to bring about psychological helplessness in the individual, along with feelings of being undeserving of love, and hence, even life going behind the Iron Curtain. The universality of these principles, they apply in all societal settings that oppress and control people, 
was deeply impressed upon me when I visited East Berlin under communism in 1988, one year before the Berlin Wall came down. I went with author Jeffrey Maison, who speaks German and has studied Nazi Germany. To get to East Berlin, we took an underground train from West Berlin and got off at the last and only stop within a frightening labyrinth of grim-faced guards beneath East Berlin. Inside the city itself, it was bleak and barren of interesting or exciting activities. The people looked fearful and depressed. We, we were approached by a small group of teenagers who begged us to find a way to sneak them into West Berlin, an act of despair that took considerable bravery and perhaps recklessness born of resentment at living within a totalitarian system. Unlike the animals described by Pavlov as dying from loss of freedom, these youngsters were striving for freedom, and it leaves me wondering how they fared when the Berlin Wall came down a year later. I was struck at the time by something I continue to mull upon to this very day. Stepping into East Berlin brought back my experience as a Harvard college student when, as a volunteer, I first experienced the inside of a state mental hospital. The bleakness, the lack of normal human activity, the sadness and despair in the faces, and the pitiable requests to please help them go free. This is the fate of people who have gradually and inexorably been crushed by totalitarianism. They become like inmates of a giant 1950s state mental hospital. These observations closely parallel those of sociologist Irving Goffman, who describes mental hospitals as total institutions, the institutional equivalent of totalitarianism. He explained how it robs people of their very identity as they adopt the necessary submissive and demoralized attributes to survive in a wholly coercive situation. Reducing people to objects. Humans cannot be objective towards other humans without harming them. Predators in the wild seem to be objective. They do not seem to hate their prey. This is not so of humans. Whenever we try to be objective about other people, we suppress our love, our empathy for them, and we end up degrading them. Instead of being objective, we become hateful and exploitive. If they show any resistance to our objectifying them, we may destroy them. I have seen this in my profession of psychiatry, where diagnosing people as schizophrenic or clinically depressed or bipolar blocks any caring feelings that doctors may have for them enabling the hateful and violent practices such as drugging patients with neurotoxins and inflicting electroshock and lobotomies on them. Uh, short aside, bear in mind, Dr. Bragan helped spearhead, helped lead the charge against surgical lobotomy, against electroshock therapy, and against neurotoxic so-called mental health happy pills. Um, so yeah, thank you, Dr. Bregan. The guy's 84 years old. He worked at NIH uh, before Fauci got there. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Back to the book. Only shared values and mutual affection ultimately limit how badly people will treat each other. Unfortunately, for the few sitting on the mountaintops of wealth and power, 
while manipulating humanity, people can look as far distant as ants underfoot, or all the more distant as ants underfoot in a nature film. In 1964, in one of my earliest publications, Coercion of Patients in an Open Mental Hospital, I described how a supposedly voluntary psychiatric ward was not truly voluntary. When patients resisted drug treatment or wanted to go home, the staff would often threaten and intimidate them, for example, by mentioning possible transfer to a state hospital, by threatening electroshock treatment, or by suggesting they might need to be committed against their will. Similar threats permeate our free society under COVID-19 policies and practices. With warnings about dire personal or legal consequences from failing to wear masks, resisting vaccines, having too many friends over, needing quarantine, or criticizing the authorities in their largely non-extant science. David L. Althead concluded his paper on terrorism and the politics of fear with the following observations that apply as much to the politics of fear used to implement the COVID-19 shutdown. They seek to reduce individuals to objects rather than involving them as subjects. The element of direct physical coercion is either open or poorly concealed, and there is no further goal than that of either neutralizing the threat or making it manageable. Wow. In a paper I delivered in Germany at the only conference ever on medicine in the Third Reich, I addressed the role of psychiatry and psychiatrists in paving the way for the Holocaust and the highly organized bureaucratic murder of the psychiatric inmates and disablement of their care. Very consistent with the final remarks of Althead's paper, I concluded in my published version of the paper that in order to dominate and destroy people, the German psychiatrist had to think of them and treat them as if they were objects. One fundamental flaw is the reduction of the human being to an object devoid of inherent worth over inviolability. In Muller Hill's words, it seems to be that to reduce other people to the status of depersonalized objects is of no help whatsoever to them. Trying to view people objectively can be demeaning in and of itself. It also tends to lead toward further degradation of the individual into subhuman status. In the Nazi ideology, the Jews became pests and vermin. In psychiatric ideology, patients became diseases or biochemical and genetic aberrations. Devoid of inherent value, they become suitable for various inhumane solutions, including involuntary treatment and ultimately sterilization and extermination. Similar objectifications accompanied by fear or terror take place in public health in the service of political totalitarianism. Individuals become disease characters, carriers, disease characters, eh, excuse me, disease carriers, or merely contacts. And all the protections given to human beings in the constitutions, in the Constitution and Bill of Rights become null and void. We should apply the Nuremberg Code to obtaining consent for vaccination from prisoners, hospitalized mental patients, or nursing home inmates. People living under such authoritarian conditions are faced with intense pressure if they refuse a vaccine. Therefore, they cannot give voluntary consent to dangerous experimental procedures such as Operation Warp Speed vaccines. 
Vaccines should not be offered to them any more than they should be offered the opportunity to participate in other kinds of dangerous or life-threatening experiments. Extending that principle, as Ginger Bregan has pointed out, society itself has now become so authoritarian and threatening surrounding COVID-19 issues that people feel compelled to volunteer for the vaccine. If they do not volunteer, they are subject to social rejection and to increasing limitations on their freedom, such as going to school, traveling, working at the office, shopping in stores, or going to public events. Therefore, these experimental and dangerous vaccines should not be given to anyone, and we should return to the stricter standard of requiring that they pass through the FDA approval process before being marketed. Using increasing and yet inconsistent threats. Some recent threats employed by shutdown advocates are reminiscent of totalitarian governments. One such example is the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, telling citizens to use a special hotline to photograph and report their neighbors and other people who were not following all the shutdown rules. Another example is the mayor of Los Angeles announcing the city will turn off electrical power and water if private homes or businesses have large groups. Issuing catastrophic threats is a major way of making people docile. On March 6, 2020, the Australian National University reportedly declared, in the most disastrous scenario, the global death toll could reach a staggering 68 million. The best scenario was 15 million. The first author, Warwick McKibben, was also associated with the Brookings Institute. Hmm. On March 10th, 2020, Tom Frieden, former head of CDC, wrote we could have a million deaths in the U.S. On March 16th, 2020, the New York Times reported White House takes new line after dire report on death toll. A new twist on threats was made in a recent scientific publication on August 13th, 2020, entitled Comparison of Estimated Excess Deaths in New York City During the COVID-19 and 1918 Influenza Pandemic. On August 15, 2020, the fantastical manipulations to make this comparison were correctly debunked by Richard Epstein in a report, COVID-19 confusion. So he's talking about, as an aside, Bregan's talking about all these threats. Oh, we're going to see X number of deaths unless you follow our uh, standards. Of course, we recently saw... It was ironic. It came from Johns Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health, or some some organization at Johns Hopkins, not necessarily the Bloomberg School. But um, they said, oh, the lockdowns, uh, yeah, they uh, decreased the death rate by 0.2%, if that. But back to the book. I recently had a personal experience of inflicting uncertainty on helpless beings under my control. Ooh, Interesting. In the cold weather, I wanted to encourage my dogs to respond more quickly when I called them to return home with me after walking outdoors in the snow. So I began to give them treats after we returned home. But I enjoy walking them so many times a day, I decided to give them occasional or intermittent treats. After a few weeks of this erratic rewarding became apparent to me, my wife Ginger and her mom Jean, that the dogs became anxious and confused at those times that I did not give them their expected treats. Anthony Fauci's well-documented flip-flopping on issues represents that this kind of unnerving practice. Good point. Censorship is loss of freedom. 
The control of the media and internet is in the hands of multi-billion dollar industries who favor top-down government, who pay off or collaborate with government administrators and legislators, and who almost universally favor the extremes of the COVID-19 shutdown. Google and YouTube, Twitter and Facebook, and Amazon Stifling and controlling free speech on a, on a mass scale in the name of public health is characteristic of the shutdown. Censorship is the loss of freedom of expression. As a most astounding example, Alex Berenson, the highly respected, although I don't respect Berenson too much. I got to disagree with you on that one, Mr. Bregan. Check out uh, Is Alex Berenson Controlled Dissent? Or Controlled Opposition, excuse me. But back to his book. Sorry to interrupt your book, Mr. Bregan. As an astonishing example, Eric Berenson, the highly respected former New York Times science reporter who was censored in advance by Amazon when he tried to sell his insightful documented booklet on their enormous website. From all the truly bizarre and evil publications Amazon has for sale, they decided his book, Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns, did not meet their standards. They gave him no reason except to say it would help if he edited out references to COVID-19, which happened to be the subject of his book. As he describes in part two, he was saved by the intervention of the powerful Elon Musk. If Amazon had not accepted the book, Berenson writes, there was no other comparable alternative for him to get his views to the public. Okay, gotta jump in there with an aside. Uh, I read Berenson's book. I haven't read his booklets, but I read his best-selling book, Pandemia. And it led me to believe that Berenson is controlled opposition, giving us a limited hangout contrarian perspective on COVID. That's my opinion. Back to Bregan's book. The justification for censorship is typically that the publication or commentary is too extreme or comes from an extremist. This is true whether a gigantic monopolistic corporation or the government is making the negative judgment. On this subject, Timothy Snyder has been eloquent and precise. Extremism certainly sounds bad, and governments often try to make it sound worse by using the word terrorism in the, in the same sentence. But the word has little meaning. There is no doctrine called extremism. When tyrants speak of extremists, they just mean people who are not in the mainstream, as the tyrants themselves are defining that mainstream at that particular moment. Dissidents of the 20th century, whether they were resisting fascism or communism, were called extremists. Modern authoritarian regimes, such as Russia, use laws on extremism to punish those who criticize their policies. In this way, the notion of extremism comes to mean virtually everything except what is, in fact, extreme tyranny. In our ordinary activities as citizens, we may feel censorship does not have much impact on our lives. For example, if you want to look up critical information about Dr. Fauci or Bill Gates, you may feel satisfied with what you find on Google or on Wikipedia or even on social media. Once you begin to dig deeper and to talk to people with critical opinions, you will realize how thoroughgoing the censorship can be in the interest of progressing globalism. Even if you go to your favorite media on the left, such as CNN, or the right, such as Fox News, you may think you're getting something nearer the truth, but you will find sparingly little about much, most of the issues discussed in this book. You will uncover pitifully little about the routine corruption that runs amok in major corporations, because both the left and the right media now depend on advertising coving from globalist corporations.
large corporations and the limits of human caring. Why does corporate life go morally south? We humans evolved to live in extended nomadic families, often no larger than 20 or 30 in number. This went on for hundreds of thousands of years until the advent of villages a mere 10,000 years ago. Thus, we evolved to care about the well-being of the people nearest and dearest to us in our nomadic extended family, while feeling fearful, defensive, or predatory toward the great body of humanity surrounding us. While our capacity to care about people close to us persists, many of us work in large corporations, institutions, or agencies where we impact people whose names we will never know and whose faces we will never see. Whether we are working for a drug company or a government agency, most of us lack concern and empathy for the distant people over whom we have so much power. On top of that, the breakdown of traditional cultural ties that bind large groups of people, such as nationalism, a shared history, religion, and varied cultural identities, leave these human predators unrestrained by any broad sense of affiliation or love for the people they are perpetrating against. The world has turned into a field full of prey, at times a killing field, for all enormous predators who feel little or no attachment to the vast numbers of people over whom they seek economic, religious, or political dominion. With the rejection of basic principles and sound ethics so rampant in modern society, those who run large entities of any kind, governmental, corporate, and religious, have become easily corrupted, putting their own power and wealth and their own institutions above all else. As I describe in my book, Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, we evolved over millions of years to feel attached, loving, and obligated to our immediate family, while often fearing and avoiding strangers. In our personal and family relationships, we naturally feel negative inhibitory emotions like guilt, shame, and anxiety when we behave badly. However, we may feel little or no concern for strangers somewhere else in the world who are being directly or indirectly disadvantaged or harmed by our activities. A person who would never cheat in ordinary life, that is, with friends or family, might think nothing of manipulating data in a computer to make the corporation's products look safer and more useful than they are. This human weakness with respect to caring about people with whom we have no kinship and little or no contact, and on whom we depend for making a profit, dooms large, heartless entities to becoming corrupt. This vulnerability exists whether we are talking about large government, giant corporations, powerful political parties, or international religious organizations. Even worse, these large entities will become even more monstrously corrupt if there are no competing or inhibiting entities, such as effective governmental watchdog agency, a free press dedicated to honesty and the public good, or a strong president protective of America and liberty. The strength and independence of America is the predominant reason this disparate group of global predators feels the need to cooperate and to get strength from each other. Many of them have strong financial ties to America from which they draw much of their power. But as others have warned, these parasites are endangering the host with globalism and with their ties to the Chinese communists. SilverDollar.com describes part of that paradoxical process of the globalists destroying their host. But why would the globalists do this? For those that assume the U.S. economy represents the goose that lays the golden eggs, what I describe above is inconceivable. In order to understand what is happening and why, 
We must cast off the lie that America is a global goose, a golden goose that perpetually supports the globalist agenda. Rather, America is more like a host to the globalist parasites. And once the host is drained of all vitality, the parasites will leave and move on to bigger and better targets. Globalists are not only predators, but they are also parasites that live off the subjugation of other people. In a profound sense, all humans who profit off the unfreedom of other people are parasites. I'm going to read that again. In a profound sense, all humans who profit off the unfreedom of other people are parasites. And when they go too far, they kill their host, the captive people they are exploiting. There can be no doubt that the predatory globalist billionaires and huge international corporations see American conservatism as a vast impediment to their success and that their aim is the death of America as a patriotic bastion of freedom. If the globalist left continues to succeed in destroying America from within, as a freedom-loving nation, they will clear an open road for the Chinese communists on their way to dominating Earth. The left's murder of the American right will become an unintended suicide of the American left itself, as China snuffs out the great experiment in freedom begun by our founders less than 250 years ago. The current suppression of Americans pa America's patriotic conservative right is China's agenda. What can we do about this looming tragedy for us and the rest of humanity? We Americans can no longer afford to remain helpless in the face of parasitic global predators. We must revive our determination to stand up for personal and political liberty. No other country and no other people are prepared to do it without our leadership. So there you go. Chapter 32, COVID-19 and the global predators. Like I said, Bregan is a bit more of a Trump supporter than me. Takes it uh, to, uh, yeah, it puts a lot of the blame on the Chinese and the globalists. And I can agree with him to a large extent there. And uh, I think it's important to read from a wide variety of sources. So that's why I'm sharing that book with all y'all today. Fascinating read. You know, whether I agree or disagree with Mr. Bregan on everything, I certainly appreciate the fact that he has spent 50 years, over 50 years. He said his first article, you know, in that chapter, he mentions his first book or article published in 1964 about psychiatric patients in mental institutions and in voluntary mental institutions uh, being threatened with the notion of being lobotomized or electroshocked or moved to a involuntary institution as a way of controlling them and coercing them. 1964. I got a 1964 T-Bird. Going to fix that up this summer. Paint it up all pretty. Ride around, join the freedom convoys. You know, there's a quote there somewhere. The tree of liberty must occasionally be, uh, must frequently, I think, be watered with the blood of tyrants and patriots. And it seems like we're kind of at that point. Of course, I would prefer, and I hope you do too, I would prefer things to remain peaceful. But, you know, humanity 
hope for the best, prepare for the worst, right? On that note, that's another episode in the can. Thanks for tuning in. Mog Farts, episode four, February. Yeah, it's almost it's 8 a.m. on the dot, 7.58 a.m., February 9th, 2022. Thank you all for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Big shout out, big thank you to everybody standing up for freedom. I got a, I've had people trying to get me to help organize some protests. I should jump, jump on that. I just have never been much of a protester. I've always been more of a, I mean, I'll go to some protests, but something about them, you know, I prefer to make all day, every day, an act of protest. I prefer to make my protest slightly profitable as opposed to spending money on it. I don't like, you know, I went to the after standing rock, uh, you know, when I say profitable, I don't mean like making money, but sustainable in the sense that it doesn't cost money to go protest. I, re I remember going to, uh, I've only been to Washington DC once I went there for the native nations rise March after, Standing Rock encampments were raided and destroyed by the corrupt federal government. And uh, it just seems silly to me to like show up on the steps of the, the government. You know, all these people show up in DC. They all, you know, a bunch of, you know, most of us spent money to stay in hotels, spent money at local restaurants. And we walked through the streets waving flags and si holding signs. And uh, nothing changed. Nobody listened. But uh, there's a big difference between uh, trucks, semi-trucks, tractors, all sorts of equipment, literally blocking the roads, shutting down the cities, and incessantly honking. So I support this notion. I just, you know, I'm not willing to drive to Deer Valley to go ski crappy snow. Certainly not going to drive to a capital city in the U.S. and block traffic. But I encourage other people, if that's that's what floats your boat, go ahead and do it. And just remember, friends, if the supply chain shuts down, if the cost of food, cost of living, food, housing, fuel continues to go up, if we keep experiencing inflation, hopefully not hyperinflation, but it's in the forecast. If we experience uh, more inflation, shortages of important essentials like food don't blame the truckers okay let's not suffer that stockholm syndrome that peter reagan warns us about the truckers don't want to be there they don't want to be parked in the middle of the road not making money not at home with their families not doing their jobs the only reason they're doing it is because their need for freedom supersedes their need for sustenance think about that freedom from bogus top-down techno-fascist bioterrorist vax mandates is more important than food think about that on that note i'm off i'm gonna go uh work on a project building something for a friend you know, I like building camper vans. Why? Because it's freedom in a nutshell. Yes, I would rather these vehicles be powered by some 
Tesla tech that doesn't involve oil, gas, but we're not there yet as a species. So giving people the option to go camping comfortably, bring everything with them, take the family out, get off the grid, get away from it all, live cheaply. You know, a lot of the folks I'm building out vans for, they go completely, uh, they cut out their, they cut out a large percentage of their monthly nut housing, utilities, etc., by going van, by going hashtag van life. So I'm looking forward to doing that today, helping a buddy with uh, a wife and two young kids get their adventure mobile tuned up. I'm going to work on that for a couple of hours. Then I'm going to take the dog for a ski. Took the dog for a ski uh, day before yesterday, and we were up on a mountaintop. And the dog, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And you can tell a dog to stay off the cornice so they don't fall through or break the cornice. But <sighs> there are limits. There are limits to what we can convince people and animals to do, including ourselves. You know, I can put out a video how to survive depopulation, but I can't even make myself. I can't even make myself always follow my own advice. It's funny how that works, isn't it? And similarly, I can't uh, convince my dog to stay off a cornice because he doesn't understand. The other day, the dog, we are on a craggy ridgeline ascending towards the peak. Just barely skinnable. Just con it was right contemplating switching over to boot packing, even though I knew I'd be a boot to knee deep snow, breaking through the crust. I was barely holding on with skins. And the dog went up, and sure enough, popped through the cornice right where the cliff face meets the wall. Luckily, he caught himself. And similar situation happened with my buddy Andrew couple weeks ago what's the point well I could leave the dog at home out of fear that he might do something stupid fall through a cornice get stuck on a cliff face break a cornice and go tumbling down a steep slope or I can accept the fact that life has risks and we can't mitigate all of them Especially in regards to the coronavirus. <laughs> so, freedom over fear. Liberty over safety. Let's do it. I love all y'all. Stay woke. Take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Remember, corporate media is specifically designed to distract us, divide us, deceive us, deter us from taking positive action, and depress the living shit out of us. Spreading that guilt, shame and anxiety what's the best thing we can do well to some extent we should pay attention to it but we got to overstand it we got to overstand it never understand always overstand on that note i'm out you have a lovely day thanks for listening take care one love and of course peace <laughs>